Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to have you with uh, us another Tuesday evening where we have the opportunity to reflect into the great ancient Christian thinkers, where we have the opportunity to really engage primitive Christianity and ask the question, what is the relevance of primitive Christianity? Uh, and I typically do this with John O'Hare, and he is once again with me. So, John, it is great to have you with me tonight. Thank you once again, Joe. So it really is our our job to ask that question and answer the question, what is the relevance of, of history? And we are in uh, the church historian, Eusebius, right now. We talked a little bit about him last week, John, and we will talk more about him this week because he certainly recorded some important events. It's a bit of a historical oddity, John, that here we are talking about a church historian who made history. <laughs> you don't have that very often, you know, because we think about history and we say, well, you know, it's this tedious, monotonous thing to record uh, data and events. But for Eusebius, history was so much more than that. Yeah, and historians are the people that tell the stories of our time. Mm -hmm. This is history, therefore it has to be factual or pretty factual, as factual as we can get it. This is not a novel. It isn't a poem. This isn't the Iliad and the Odyssey. Mm. And he uh, goes into history methodically. Mm -hmm. I mean, and he gets these names and he gets these dates. And his uh, manuscripts are preserved. And therefore, as people look at him and go back, yes, he was important. I don't think he intended to be, well, of course, he was probably an ambitious man. Afterwards, his writings were the most complete of that period. Mm -hmm. And we can put lots together from him. Just a little aside, he ran across a man named called Pontanius, mm -hmm. who uh, had uh, actually had gone to India around 150, 200, sometime around there, we're looking for Bartholomew, the, the, the apostle Bartholomew. Yes. And when he got to India, he found a church and dedications to Bartholomew. They felt that he had come. Well, it was Eusebius that got that story and saved it. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, therefore, Bartholomew, who is not very well known, mm -hmm. he was the one that Christ called, uh, what, you're the, the heavy hitter politician, so I forget yes, the exact yes, word. Yes, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So we have a little bit more about Bartholomew, thanks to Eusebius. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there's a certain excitement that is in the air when you find something new about those who have gone before us. I mean, we have archaeologists for a reason, because they're constantly wanting to discover more truth about our history, and that's what Eusebius was after. But again, he wants us to see history as somewhat of a learning tool, yes. just not for the classroom, John, but for us to appreciate what to do and what not to do based upon those who have gone uh, before us because of this moral dimension. Again, as Benedict XVI himself noted while reflecting upon Eusebius John, historical analysis is never an end in itself. It is not made solely with a view to knowing the past. Rather, it focuses decisively 
on conversion and on that authentic witness of Christian life on the part of the faithful. It is to be a guide for us, John. This is what is so important for us. So yeah, this is why Eusebius strongly challenges believers of all times on their approach to the events of history and of the church in particular. Huh? I mean, he challenges us. What is our attitude with regard to the church's experiences? Is it the attitude of those who are interested in it merely out of curiosity or even in search of something sensational or shocking at, at all costs? Why are we approaching history? And these are questions that Benedict XVI was asking while he was reflecting on this great figure of Eusebius. What did Eusebius teach us? What did he tell us in his opening of the ecclesiastical history? But Christ is the protagonist of history. Yes. Okay, Christ is the one who is moving history. And hey, is this mystery? Yes. It was the great uh, Catholic theologian from the 20th century, huh, John? Uh, Cardinal Danny Lu, who made note that history has a hidden content. The mystery is that of God's works, which John, as Danny Lu notes, constitute in time the authentic reality concealed behind the appearances. We are called to have an attitude full of love. All historians, John, are to have the attitude full of love and open to the mysteries of those who know through faith that they can trace in the history of the church those signs of God's love and the great works of, of salvation wrought by him. This is what Benedict XVI uh, wanted us to see, and this is why he encourages us to have this attitude of love towards history and an attitude that is open to mystery. We talked about uh, Matthew 28 when Christ said to men, go out and baptize, teaching them all that I have told you, hmm. and he ascends into heaven. Christ expects us to carry on his word. He gave us the wherewithal, the talent, whatever, to go and do this. And this is a story of how we've carried on his mission. Yeah, go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching. Baptize into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So history is sacramental. Okay, history is, is sacramental. And certainly as Christians and, and as Catholics, this is what we are about. How can we look into history and see it as a sign of God's love? Uh, how does history point to the deeper truth of Christ? This is uh, what it's about. Now, why are we spending an extra week in Eusebius? Well, we hardly got into Eusebius last, last week as it relates to his writings and certainly his great affection for Constantine, which in the end probably got him into trouble, yes, a little bit of trouble. But I did want to talk about Constantine because really when you look into history, there's a pretty big event that happened in the life of Eusebius because of what happened to Constantine which Eusebius records, right, in his ecclesiastical history and in his later life of Constantine. The event or the point on the timeline that you, you, that you will usually see with Constantine is 313 or 314 AD, in which we have the Edict of Milan. But there are two principal, I would say, events that are connected to the Edict of Milan. The two major points really are, uh, A, the vision of Constantine, and then second, the Battle of Milvian Bridge. Now, Eusebius gives a detailed account of uh, this vision that Constantine has and stresses that he heard the story 
from uh, the emperor himself in his uh, life of Constantine, that is in Eusebius's work life of Constantine. Now, according to this version, Constantine with his army was marching when he looked up to the sun and saw a cross of light above it uh, with the Greek words that translate through this sign, you shall conquer. At first, Constantine, as Eusebius notes, was unsure of the meaning of the apparition. But in the following night, as he records, he had a dream in which Christ explained to him that he should use the sign against his enemies. He would eventually etch this sign he saw on the sky onto the shields of his soldiers. And now, uh, outnumbered three to one against uh, Maxentius, who was emperor of the East, Constantine, who was emperor of the West, have this great battle, uh, the battle known as the Battle of Milvian Bridge. And again, as I said, outnumbered three to one against Maxentius's army. He wins the Battle of the Milvian Bridge and ultimately becomes the sole emperor of Rome. And now, of course, from this great victory, John, and with the influence of his mother, one St. Helena, who we'll talk about in a bit, the Edict of Milan of 313 or 314 is given, and it ultimately frees and lifts the persecution of the Christians. Constantine's father was well, kind of the emperor of England. He was mm-hmm. way up in the north. Mm-hmm. And when Constantine got into his issues, he made a rapid trip from almost Turkey to the north, assembled forces, and then came down. Now, if you're a church historian, you may ask your students, what are the most important dates in Christian history? Mm-hmm. And they are almost going to say 314 and 1517. Mm-hmm. And probably those are. I can't think of any more important than those. That's right. But what happened uh, within Hawk Signo, it was uh, you know, really extremely important. Mm-hmm. And we were just coming out of one of the worst persecutions the church had ever gone through, Diocletian. Diocletian had since retired, but he, uh, the people that took his place were, were pretty anti-Christian. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that in hoc signo, of course, being in Latin, uh, in this sign, you know, earlier I had mentioned in this sign, you, you will conquer. So what happened in 313, 314? Well, the Edict of Milan. Once Constantine had uh, won that battle of Milvian Bridge, ultimately he had declared this Edict of Milan, or otherwise known as the Edict of Toleration, the Toleration of the Christians, which essentially, John, historically is very important, as you just noted, especially those two dates, because... In that edict was the lifting of the persecution of the Christians. And so there was a time of peace, brief, (laughs) a very brief time of peace, but a time of peace nonetheless. Now, Eusebius had a great affection for Constantine, and to some degree, probably too strong, some would say. But yeah, very important, John, when you talk about, you know, going into history and saying, okay, what are the important events? The Battle of Milvian Bridge, Constantine defeating Maxentius, uh, despite being outnumbered three to one. I'm not quite sure that I, at one time I did know the details of the battle, but the bridge collapsed with the enemy on it. And yes. And they fell with all their armor into yes. the river, and that was, that was the end of that. Yeah, and that's Maxentius drowning with, yeah. with many of his soldiers. Now, there's another important note, I think, historically, John, with, uh, with this, which I think is fascinating, and that's his mother, 
okay, Helena, St. Helena as we know her now. In fact, if you were to go into St. Peter's Basilica, and I know you've been there, yes, yes. there's a beautiful, very large statue of St. Helena. She was a devout Christian, and certainly she had Christ in the ear of one Constantine. Now, Constantine was still to some degree unsure of what to make of this whole Christianity thing. So when it was all said and done, he had asked Helena, his mother, to go to Jerusalem. And as the story goes, he asked her to come back with proof that this Christ actually existed. Okay, well, that's what she does. So she makes the travels down to Jerusalem, and she comes back with a number of proofs of evidence, if you will, that Christ existed, one of which, among so many others, was the actual cross that Christ was crucified on, and many other what we would call relics. This is the beginning of relics in the church, where we venerate relics uh, of the saints, those who have gone before us who lived holy lives. And for Constantine, this was very important. This was very important that she came back with the evidence that she did. She also found the place where Christ was crucified by asking people, and in fact, Hadrian had built uh, a temple to the uh, Roman gods, uh, trying to, when they were very anti-Jewish, and she found this place, and that has been revered as Christ's crucifixion place, even though some uh, archaeologists in the 19th century thought it was not, she turned out, I mean, that place turned out to be the the thing. Mm -hmm. And another thing I just want to point out is that the church had been under persecution for a long time. Now they could actually meet with the Edict of Milan. They could meet yes. and talk. Yeah. And pretty soon, the nature of Christianity, the deep philosoph- whatever, the philosophical questions, the theology, all this is beginning to be talked about yes. by their leaders, by their bishops, by their intellectuals, by the people. And how important is that, John? Because for so long they were meeting in these catacombs, they were meeting in these houses in secret, and they didn't have the freedom, per se, to meet openly and convene and discuss these these heresies and these doctrines. And now they can build a church, a yes. public church above ground, and come and worship. Yeah, in fact, John, if you're to go to Rome today, I believe it is uh, the Church Saints Cosmos and Damien. It, it was once a, a temple. Uh, these saints who were medical doctors, they are patron saints of um, medical professionals, uh, the, the first temple turned into a church. You can go there today. I believe it is not too far from the Colosseum. Uh, it's just most fascinating. You start getting into these historical pieces, John, and it's it's deeply moving, deeply moving. And so, as you make that point, John, in regards to coming together and meeting and talking about the different aspects of the faith, this certainly opens the door for us to walk through as it relates to this era known as the Golden Age of Doctrine. Yes. Now, we have to remember something. We've already talked about how Origen, who was the one who said heresy, we can almost look at as a gift because it leads to a clarification of doctrine, right? Um, a, a bit of a provocative statement by Origen to say heresy is a gift, but what does it lead to? A better understanding of the doctrine itself. Anytime, John, you have a question about a teaching, what do you do? You roll up your sleeves to uh, understand it better. Well, this is what they did. There was some confusion during this time the time of the Edict of Milan, uh, and soon thereafter, I believe it was 317, 318, where a priest by the name of Arius, a priest of Alexandria, did not believe that Jesus Christ was co-equal to the Father, and nor did he believe that the Holy Spirit was co-equal to the Father. Essentially, he did not believe in the Trinity as we know it today, nor did he then believe 
in the incarnation as we believe it today. He believed that there was no Christ. In the beginning, there was no Christ. There was God the Father, mm-hmm. no Christ. Mm-hmm. And one of his quotes is, the Son of God is not from eternity. Yep. He came from nothing. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. And, and John, that, influ- that was influencing a lot of priests and bishops in this area of Alexandria. Now, we've already talked about the importance of just not Alexandria, but the school of Alexandria and the influence it had on early Christian thought. So you can well imagine um, while there was this time of peace because persecution was, um, had been lifted, there was some rumblings from within. And certainly, this is what ultimately would lead to the Council of Nicaea. Rumblings from within, right. Arius was a deacon and then a priest. Mm -hmm. This came from within the church. So Constantine sees this. And so as to avoid, we can say, (laughs) a civil war within the church, he calls for the Council of Nicaea. And Eusebius talks about this a great deal. It's interesting. He did not like, Eusebius made, made this clear, he did not like this polarizing of the faith. And this is what was happening. There were kind of two camps against each other. And so um, Constantine calls for the the council, and they meet the Council of Nicaea in 325. Now, what's important to to, uh, understand here as we begin to talk a little bit about the Council of Nicaea is that you have a clarification of doctrine, yes, But in so doing, behind what do you have, John, but a stronger sense of unity, a stronger sense of where uh, the the church was going. So they come together, the the bishops and the priests, and they they gather around tables and they discuss, okay, what does Scripture reveal and point to as as it relates to the Trinity? What have the early Christian thinkers already told us about the Incarnation? And so as they're talking about this, out from that discussions, we begin to have a deep understanding of what the Trinity and Incarnation are all about. The inaugural speech at the Council of Nicaea was given by a man named Eusebius of Nicomedia, mm-hmm. an Arian, not mm-hmm. to be confused with the R. Eusebius of Caesarea. But he gave a speech in which, which, you know, Christ came from nothing. He's not equal to God the Father. Mm-hmm. Important, yes, mm-hmm. but he's not God. There goes your Trinity. And that means the incarnation is really not that important. Mm-hmm. Mary is not the mother of God. Mm-hmm. Uh, and once that happens, how can Christ, who is not truly God, redeem us? Mm-hmm. We have some serious issues coming up. Yeah, and it really raises the point, John, why bother? Why a council? You know, and maybe, you know, I was opening up with this program today. You know, what is the relevance of uh, primitive Christianity? We probably have listeners right now. You know, what is the relevance of the Council of Nicaea? Well, aside of the fact that it's what we pray every time we go to Mass, right, the Nicene Creed, because it is what we believe in, um, it draws out the deeper questions about our faith. It's just not what we believe in, but ultimately, why do we believe what we believe in? This kind of circles back to the points we made last week and the week before, John, as it relates to not that they were using this language, but personal relationship with Jesus Christ. They're not using that language necessarily then, but in essence, this is what it points to. If we can come to better understand the nature and essence of God, it then in turn can help us with our relationship with God. Remember, the Christian God is a personal God, the God who is love. 
They came up with a key word called homoousius, mm-hmm. which in Greek means consubstantial with the Father or one in being with the Father. Now think if the other side had won. Mm-hmm. What would have happened to Christianity? Yeah. And so what does this mean? I think for us, bring this down a little bit. Well, what simply does the Trinity mean? What are we claiming as faithful Christians and Catholics when we talk about the Trinity? Well, let's simplify this. The Trinity, as it comes out from the Council of Nicaea and is really revealed in sacred scripture, is the Father eternally loving the Son, and in turn, the Son eternally loving the Father, and that love so real that it actually gives us a third person in the Holy Spirit. Remember, the Holy Spirit is the love shared between the Father and the Son, okay? We talked a little bit about this um, as we were discussing De Trinitatis. It's important because when you look at the Trinity, what does it point to? John, that interpersonal communion that we all long for, that fellowship that we all long for. Yeah, you ask the question, whoa, you know, what if they got that one wrong? Praise be Jesus Christ that they didn't, because it really is the source from which we are to draw and understand what it's all about. You know, our families, our friendships, our society is that interpersonal communion of love. Everything that we do within our families, within our local communities, is constantly pointing back to the Trinity because the Trinity is the identity of God. And that's so important as we talk about this. So The Holy Spirit, that love between Father and Son was present at that council and got us the right answer, as he has so many times. That's right, John. And then the incarnation. God, fully human. God, fully divine. In, In a more technical sense for those theologians out there, John, that hypostatic union, which is simply that Christ is fully human and fully divine, that Christ gives us the full meaning, and as John Paul II would say, St. John Paul II would say, the full meaning and vision of man. Remember what we have talked about in the past, John, as it relates to history itself, that great quote from John Paul II, that history is not some series of progression of events towards what is better, but an event of freedom. What he wanted us to appreciate is that we are more than just this progression in how we function. It is about who we are. It is about saying yes to doing God's will. And when we reflect upon the incarnation, fully human and fully divine, what Christ teaches us fundamentally is that we have this capacity as we have been incorporated into the body of Christ. We have this capacity as we are called to share in God's divine nature to rise above all of those challenges in God's grace and to be great, you know, to understand that we've been given the grace to do things that, humanly speaking, we could never do. And so he says, hey, in the Holy Spirit, I am giving you a gift, and this gift will steer you and guide you into becoming the best version of who God is calling you to be. But if you think you're going to do that and be able to achieve that based upon uh, what you accumulate, materially speaking, or how you function and what you do, you will never arrive at that place where you need to arrive. We human beings are not history. We are part of history, Mm -hmm. and we just play our part today. Mm -hmm. And what we got to concentrate on is our relationship with Christ today, our relationship with other people today, okay? And uh, Eusebius gave a speech for the 20th and 30th anniversary of Constantine's emperorship, 
and he went gaga over this guy. He just <laughs> fell in love with him. <laughs> he really did. <laughs> did let him the, into, yeah. I mean, it, it got him by some measures in trouble. John, we were it talking a little, about a little this um, about this a little bit before. Um, some of the things that he was saying, you know, he, he he called him our divinely favored emperor who directs an imitation of God himself, the world's affairs. Now, there was many praises of Constantine. It's interesting. Some popes would actually affirm some of his words, but certainly it's almost as if there was this kind of idolatry of Constantine to a degree. He said in one of his speeches, Constantine's reign is the antechamber to heaven. Yeah. Ooh, okay. <laughs> That's a strong statement. Yes. And to some degree, while some take a step back and say, gosh, there might be a kernel of truth to that, is because of what he did in the Edict of Milan. Mm-hmm. It's to remember, John, that during that time, during that very brief era of peace, this is the genesis of, of the Christianity and Christendom that we've come to know today, at least on a foundational level. No, I don't want to get off track, but uh, Constantine himself ran into some serious trouble shortly. He uh, had to kill his son, mm-hmm. he killed his son and his wife. Now the two of them, uh, his wife was not the mother of the son, Christmas, mm-hmm. uh, and he suspected an affair. Anyway, there was a lot of bloodshed there. And do you want to talk about Constantine's end? Uh, sure. Okay, well, yeah. he uh, did not become a Christian until very late in life, mm-hmm. and there was a lot more Arianism going on, which I won't get into right now. But Around 337, now Arius dies around 336, he's going to be made Bishop of Rome. A lot of people don't want this, but Arius dies at age, he's older than 80 and dies in in Alexandria. He's going to be Bishop of Alexandria. And then Constantine uh, in Easter of 337 gets ill, quite ill. And he moves to a place called, uh, it's in Bithynia in Turkey where he Mm -hmm. moves. And uh, then he, he confesses his sins, he becomes a catechumen. And then right before Pentecost Sunday on in 337, he is baptized and dies on Pentecost Sunday. Amen. And yeah, I mean, it's to remember that while we talk about these figures of Eusebius and certainly Constantine as, as he has had a, such a, as he had such an important role in history, he's not a saint. No. <laughs> he's, he's not a saint. But it really raises another point, and maybe this would be our concluding point for this evening, John, is that God is going to use anyone at his disposal to bring about the greater good. Earlier in this program, I talked about the importance of mystery and how God writes straight with crooked lines, okay? There's a sense of of that going on with Constantine, that he's going to, to some degree, at least for this time period, you know, write the ship, uh, if you will, in in spite of of his sinfulness and in spite of his sinful nature. We will be looking at so many more figures, and, and we will be surveying church history, John, um, for months to come, and we will see this constantly, how, how God does write straight with crooked lines, and how God does use people that might be the last person you would expect. He's doing it today, you know, in, in, in different arenas and in different ways. So I think it's a very important point for us to, to reflect upon as we, again, take up that question, what is the relevance of uh, history and why are we studying history? So that we might gain an appreciation of not only how God works in history, but how we ourselves are to approach history and uh, so as to become a, a better Joe, a better John. And for all of you listeners out there, the best version of who God is calling you to be. All right, with that, John, great program. Let us close in prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. 
and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 6.30 p.m. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.